Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have a musical hour for you. We're going to be talking later in this hour with members of the great vocal ensemble Chanticleer, who performed recently in Logan. We'll be talking about the group's interesting beginnings in the San Francisco Bay Area, a possible rivalry with the King Singers, and men singing soprano. That's coming up later in the program. We begin with uh, cellist Amit Peled, who was raised on Israeli kibbutz, listening to cassette tapes of the great Spanish cellist Pablo Casals. He went on to become a prominent cellist in his own right. He was recently selected to play Pablo Casals' cello. Amit Peled performed recently on the USU campus. music is about emotions the same as Michael Jackson and the Beatles it's the same thing it's just no words so our job is to show the public that those emotions exist in classical music I had this vision now for a few years to take back the recital program to what it used to be in the last century in the beginning of last century Um, the great artists of that time used to go to places around the world and present usually one big sonata and then a group of showpieces, just entertainment. And it, some, for some reason, turned to be in, in the last 50 years into this serious event where artists are expected to play three big sonatas. It's a little bit like going to a Shakespeare play. And now being a parent to young kids, I, I really feel that You know, by the time you get to the concert and you get the babysitter and you put your kids to sleep and you drive and then you have to park, you have to have dinner, you get to the hall, you're dead tired after a day of work and all that stuff. And then you have to listen to three sonatas and you fall asleep, <laughs> even if you're a musician. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what, let's bring it back to the entertainment part, which is, yes, you play one big sonata, but then you play showpieces. And showpieces, I see them as just beautiful, I would say, uh, like a movie with a pizza instead of Shakespeare. Mm. It's still good. It's still fun. And we need that in life as well. So, uh, of course, we, we, ha we need the deep and the serious, but we also need the, the fun. And that's what I'm trying to do with this program. And also to share with the public pieces for cello and piano that they're not normally accustomed to hear. Um, usually students play them. They're very difficult, fast pieces, slow pieces as well, but they're extremely difficult and as teachers we want the students to go through them and to show them how we play the cello but we never present them anymore on stage so that's that's why I'm doing it hmm. and you're described in a review or two I'm looking at your website amitpele.com Uh, as wanting to break down barriers between the performers and the public yes I do and I I, I like to speak um, in concert I always have a microphone next to me in case spontaneously I feel like speaking I never plan it But I, I just want to share with the public who I am, not just as a cellist, and to show them that classical music is not this nerdy thing that you go and you have to behave. I even encourage the public to clap when they feel like. Mm. Because that's how it used to be. When the great masters of the past used to play, they would play a movement. People would clap. They would even talk in between movements. And I want people to feel that they go to... Uh, an experience and the experience is music but it's also meeting an artist and the artist can communicate with them I can speak I can share uh, stories just yesterday I was in Charlottesville Virginia and day after the recital I played for 1,200 kids from all the high schools in the area they came and I talked to them of course about the pieces and the last piece I played the Davidoff at the Fountain which I will be playing here as well Uh, there's a, a nice story there. It's at the fountain, of course, but the fountain is next to a coffee house in Vienna, and you have a couple sitting there, and then you have this gypsy player that tries to get money in his head to get the coins, and this whole seducing part of how he's trying to get the money. And th that piece was last in the program for the kids. The first pieces I was playing, and uh, 1,000 kids, you know, they were talking and this and that. And a piece more than five minutes, of course, they will lose concentration. But by the time I got to the last piece and, and we've had this conversation and I explained to them the story behind it, it was dead silent. They were listening to the story through the music. And I felt, wow, 
it's possible. It's possible to share classical music with people and they'll be completely silenced because they know what to listen to. Mm-hmm. So my job as an artist is not just to play it and to present the music, it's also to maybe present the story. And many times the story is just my story, but it's a story that they can follow and it shows them that it's possible to, to enjoy it. Mm. You've even been known to, uh, to make a joke or two. Yes, I'm trying to do that. Again, I'm not planning it, but uh, yeah. if I feel like it, it just comes out. And I, I really I don't want to plan it. I don't want to make it a stand-up comedy where I mm. just plan it. But I, I really want to feel that there's no barrier between me and the public. And by the end of the concert, let's say the whole thing takes two hours with intermission and the talking and the playing, I want them to feel that they know me. Mm. They know where I came from. Mm. They know a little bit about my life, how I started to play cello, why I'm playing cello, You know, to know that I'm a parent. I have a wife, I have family, I'm, I'm a normal person. And my job is to share music, to share emotions, and I, and I love this job. But I want them to know it. I, I want mm-hmm. them to hear my accent, mm-hmm. to know that I'm not from America, but yeah. I love America. Yeah. My kids are Americans, you know, mm-hmm. and I I just want them to feel that this whole experience is, is a human experience. There are some, uh, probably, who's, uh, and these reviews were applauding your approach because they're saying that, uh, you know, in some respects classic music is in danger of dying off because I think they would say, and you would say, of, of this sort of ponderous approach to classic music, there's some probably who still feel that uh, let's not clap between movements, let's take this very seriously. I yeah. yeah. uh, wonder what you say to them. I don't say anything to them. Okay. They can sit quiet and, and they can also choose not to come. Mm-hmm. I remember an experience once in Cape Cod. I played a Ligeti sonata. Ligeti is a modern composer, very difficult to listen to. The whole piece is nine minutes. And the first thing I told the public is, don't worry, it's only nine minutes. If you don't like it, it will just be over in nine minutes. And I explained a little bit about the piece, and one person was upset. He stood Mm -hmm. up and left the hall Mm -hmm. and wrote a letter to the director after, I'm willing to bear this cost of one person every once in a while getting upset. They're usually old, so they'll not stay around for long. Mm -hmm. But I really want to bring the young people to concert and to, to make them feel that they're wanted, and they can ask questions. I always leave time for questions and answers at the end instead of playing an encore because I know myself, I know that when I hear an artist, I have questions. I want to know you know, how many hours you practice or why did you start playing? And it's not written in the program notes. So I leave time for that as well. And I think my job is, or our job as artists these days is to to bring it back. It's not something new. It's, as I said, to bring it back to what it used to be. When the great Horowitz and Heifetz played recitals in New York in the 20s of the 19th century, people stood in line during the night to get a ticket. They stood in line, fought to get a ticket to hear this great recital. No way today you, you stand in line in the cold weather at night to get a ticket to a recital of any celebrity classical music artist. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to, to come back. I, I, want it, I, I think it's possible. It's... This music is about emotions the same as Michael Jackson and the Beatles. Mm. It's the same thing. It's just no words. So our job is to show the public that those emotions exist in classical music. Mm. We're talking on this part of the program with uh, Amit uh, Pelid, who is a cellist. Um, you have an interesting connection with Pablo Casals, the great great cellist. First of all, you, you grew up in a kibbutz in, in Israel, listening to Casals' recordings. That's true. Why You know so much about me already. I guess the internet days. Yes, the internet is, is wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah, I grew up in a kibbutz, which is a social community in, the, in a very rural area in Israel, agriculture-based. And when I started playing the cello, the first gift I got for my family was a tape cassette with the Pablo Casals playing um, cello music. By the way, show pieces like I'm going to play here. And I fell in love with the sound of the cello. I never thought I will be a cellist and never even thought that I will see his instrument. And recently, a few months ago, I got the use of his cello. And unfortunately, I don't have it with me here Mm -hmm. because uh, I was so excited to get this cello and started playing on it, not realizing that for many, many years it was sleeping in a case. And it's as if you take a Rolls Royce that was parked for 30 years Mm -hmm. and you just put gas and you want to drive it on the highway 80 miles an hour. It, Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. So the cello needs a lot of work now before I can take it back on the road. Mm-hmm. But it's just a magnificent instrument and, and a live, um, it's like history live in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I feel privileged to play it and also honored and the responsibility, but also privileged to 
be the one to share it mm-hmm. with publics. I was just last month on a tour in the Midwest, in Minneapolis, in North Dakota, in Wisconsin, Nebraska, Iowa, all those places. And I really saw people with tears um, just witnessing this cello and the history of it. And many of them grew up on that sound of that cello. So it was really emotional to see in, in Devil's Lake, North Dakota, mm. somebody who heard that cello on an on a LP when they were children and then living in North Dakota and then seeing that cello in, in the community hall mm. there. So it's a great experience to have it with me. What is it about Casals? What, uh, what, what was special? Well, of course, we know he's very special. What, what was special about Casals? Um, I think it's, it's, I can sum it in one sentence that my teacher, who was his student, Bernard Greenhouse, said, um, Greenhouse used to tell me, at the end of the day, you'll be judged by your voice. And I think Casals, of all artists, was the one to find his voice, um, truly and honestly. And that voice was... Uh, coming out through the cello, but also in his quotes and speeches and, and his act of life, you know, d- uh, denying uh, Franco and leaving Spain, not ever coming back because of the dictatorship there, uh, being involved in peace process uh, and, and, and just being, being a, a full artist, a Renaissance artist, I think. He was the, the real one, and it came out through his cello. His cello sound is not what we can say just beautiful, sweet sound. It's a human voice. Mm. When you hear him play, you hear a person speak. You hear a person recite poetry with a cello. And he was amazing in that sense and also in the way he could explain and verbalize it and teach other people how to try to do it. Generations and generations of musicians came, especially through Marlborough Festival in the 50s and 60s of last century, and try to observe this approach, how to make the instrument your voice so it becomes you. And so you're not judged by how fast you play or how loud you play. It's by how close you are to the inner part of you. And I think that's what made him special and that's what made my teacher, for me, the idol and the, the musician that I want to become. Mm. How, did, how were you picked? How did, how did you get the... The use of the cello. Well, this is a funny story. I, mean, I have uh, a friend in Washington um, that knows Martha Istomin Casals, the widow of Pablo Casals, and he arranged for me an audition for her. She's a legendary figure in the music world and beyond the music world. Everybody knows her and, and all she has done in her life for art in, in, in the, the entire world. So I was. she lives in Washington, just in front of the Kennedy Center, and I had an audition. I came in and I had about 45 minutes of music prepared to play for her, not not planning to get the cello. It was just That was not even in a far dream, my plan. And I started with Bach. Bach was uh, the composer that Casals adored the most. And with Bach, it's either you win or you lose. There's no other way. And I started with the first suite, with the prelude, the most famous um, piece by Bach for cello. And when I was done, after about two minutes of the prelude, she said, well, usually when I hear young artists, I shut my ears off after a few seconds. And I didn't do that when you played. So I was really honored and happy. And then she said, well, because of that, do you mind if I give you some comments? I said, no, I'll be honored, Miss Casals. And she basically killed me (laughs) from that moment on. And she asked for more pieces and more pieces. And as long as I kept playing, she kept giving me comments and, and pressing all the wounds. But it was just a wonderful lesson. I, I've been myself a professor now for 10 years, even though I'm young. I'm not used to get lessons anymore. I'm used to give, give lessons to my students. And this was just a great lesson. And at some point, after I played much more than 45 minutes, she asked for more and more pieces. She said, well, let's have a glass of wine. So we sat on the couch, we had a glass of wine, and I was very honored just for, from the whole situation. And she said, you know, you're a big guy, and, and the maestro, as she refers to Casals, the maestro's cello is very small cello. But you know what? Nobody has played it for many years. You can come and try it if you want. And she said, well, do you have time in July? I said, oh, sure. I'm, of course I have time. So I came to New York in July to her apartment in New York, and I met her again, and she handed me the cello. And I played a few notes on it. And it, it was really like an old man di- in a deep sleep. Hardly any sound came out. And 
I just, I couldn't play it. I was too nervous to just realizing that that tape cassette from my childhood and all those recordings, all that history is summed up in one little piece of wood. And I played for a while. I was not happy with how it sounded, but I was honored by this occasion. And I, I thanked her and I, and I left. And about two weeks after that, uh, early August, I got an email from her saying that she decided to lend me the cello. Um, then I came in September and I took the cello. Wow. <laughs> and and you t- I'm reading on your website, which again is uh, amitpelet.com, uh, still has the smell of the of the pipe. Yeah, the I, I pipe. well that was maybe it was my my uh, imagination oh, good. but okay. <laughs> but I really I could really smell. I mean, his presence was so strong. He's so strong in that cello that I could really smell <laughs> the pipe, his mm-hmm. pipe. And I remember my teacher who studied with him, Bernard Greenhouse, uh, always saying that he used to teach with a pipe. And we have many, many portraits and, and photos of him with a pipe and the cello. So with all the dust on it, that was my first reaction, is that I could smell his pipe in mm. the cello. Cellist Amit Pelid performed recently on the USU campus, a visit sponsored by the music department uh, at uh, USU. And uh, we're going to talk more with Amit Pelid coming up following a break about how he found his own voice as a musician, what it was like growing up on a kibbutz, and training a new generation of musicians. Later in this musical uh, hour of Access Utah, we'll be talking with three members of the great vocal ensemble Chanticleer. They performed recently in Logan. Back after the break. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. You are a shy person and very intimate, and through that show the emotions of the music, but you have to be 150% open with yourself. Um, it's, it's almost like walking naked on stage, knowing that you're not perfect but still do it. Uh, it's very difficult, very difficult. And there are a lot of barriers, psychological barriers that you have to break if you want to do it. We're talking on this part of the program with uh, Amit uh, Pelid, who is a cellist. I'm interested, you're playing Pablo Casal's cello, uh, you're in North Dakota, you know, you made reference to, to that. It's And the, the listener is remembering those recordings and remembering the sound of the cello, and yet it's a new person playing the cello. It's your <clears> voice, <throat> in essence, playing someone else's voice. Uh, I wonder how you parse all that out. Well, this is the interesting journey that I've been taking with this cello is, of course, first you take the instrument and you want it to sound like Casals, and that's not going to happen because it was his voice. And as you get to know the cello and the greatness of those few instruments, you know, the the Italian old instrument, you realize that the instrument itself has a voice. And your job is not to disturb it, and then it will come out. But that's the first stage. And this stage, a lot of people fall because they're trying to implement their sound into it. But the moment you realize that by not disturbing it, uh, the voice of the cello shines out of it, you realize that that great instrument will allow you to take it in your direction. And that happened to me only recently where I found and I felt that by getting to know this very, very sensitive instrument, it allows me, by being nice to it, it allows me to be myself. And that's why in the program that I'm playing now, Celebration, I end the program, the encore is the Jewish Prayer by Bloch. And I'm trying to show myself and to the public after all this evening, the journey that we go together, that at the end of the day, now I'm playing this cello and I'm not trying to imitate Casals and I'm not even trying to bring out the, the voice of the cello. I'm trying to become myself with it. And I feel that the cello allows me to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting journey. And I think sometimes young uh, students get to play those magnificent cellos and the reaction is, oh, I can't do it. It doesn't sound good. How come? And I think it's just too early. It's like riding the most exciting horse or it's like you know the, the, the most exciting Porsche or Rolls Royce. You don't just press the gas and drive fast. Those special creations need special attention and then they allow you to become yourself. Mm. And I think that's the beauty of it. 
We're talking with Amit Pelid, and uh, you can find a lot more about him and to look at some of the recordings at amitpelid.com. You have a section on your website um, called Passing It On, some very interesting mm-hmm. experiences that you've had with your teachers, and now I'm sure experiences you're having passing. One of your teachers said you now have responsibility mm-hmm. to pass this knowledge well, down to the next generation. It's mainly the tradition that, to begin with, is there's a lot of tradition. For instance, Pablo Casals played for Brahms. It's, it's hard to grasp it, but when he was a child, he played the Brahms sonata to Brahms. And then he was my teacher's teacher. Um, and that teacher, I, I lived next to his house for three years and experienced, that's Bernard Greenhouse, experienced everything around him and about him and about his music making. And now I have my own students and I can share with them those experiences and that knowledge. And I think there's a very strong knowledge uh, to pass, uh, responsibility to pass it on to the next generation. And also this approach that you will be judged by your voice, finding your voice, giving my students tools, technical tools, how to find their voice. So they will sound like them and not like me and not like Kazas, not like anybody else. It will sound, their sound will be their own voice. It's funny because I, I heard once uh, Perlman reciting the Peter and the Wolf. And it was amazing to see that his voice sounds like his violin playing, warm and, and juicy and 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 dolce and sweet and also greenhouse when he would sing to me and demonstrate a phrase it sounded like him so that was a great lesson for me um, i i take great joy in teaching teaching for me is is a very important part of i always look at my life as a triangle being a father and a husband being a teacher and being a performer and it's very hard to balance this triangle that mm-hmm. it doesn't break mm-hmm. if you teach too much you miss the playing. If you play too much, you miss teaching, and there's always the family. Um, that's the base. So I I love teaching, and by verbalizing, by finding ways to verbalize to my students how to do something, I learn myself in a better way how to do it. By asking them to become so good in what they do, I have myself, you know, I owe it to myself to do the same, the same thing. So I just, I love this combination, and I love seeing... A student, like a flower, you take a student for four years undergrad, graduate studies, and you see how you, you put water and you, you hope that it will grow. And then one day it, it grows. And that student goes on maybe to study or get a job. They get married. They have kids. They keep in touch. They become friends. And they carry on your tradition. They use your vocabulary. They, they use your sentences. What you told them, they're telling their students. I even have now in my, my class uh, what I call a, a cellist grandchild. It's a student from South Africa that studied with my former student. So he came in already with a lot of the knowledge that I told my, my former student. And it's just wonderful to see it. When you create a phrase in a concert, you might touch people for a second or for two hours. And it, it might change their life. It might make them look differently on what they do in life. But when you have a student for four years or six years... You change them forever, and they take this experience and take it to their life, to the way they live with their families, to the way they play, to the way they teach, to the way some students some students of mine stop playing and do other things, but they still write me letters and say, you know, the four years at Peabody with you, we learned so much about how to reach goals, about ambitions, about um, how to stick to something that is really hard for you. And we use it in our daily life, in our work. So it's, it gives me great joy. It's interesting you, you make the parallel between teaching and learning and family. Yeah. You had one of your teachers who, who you auditioned for him. He said, let's discover, let's, let's look at this further. Because if I take you on as a student, you become part of my family. And yeah. we, we don't know if we want to be family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this aspect of seeing if a student is teachable, I think it's more than 50%. I mean, first, they need to have talent. And they need to have great ambition to, to strive to be good at it because it's a competitive world. But at the end of the day, when I'm going to see them four hours a month, you know, four lessons a month, plus performance class, plus preparing them for festivals, I need to make sure that they're teachable and they want to listen. They want to drink the juice that I'm giving them. If they don't want to do that, it's not going to work. And I've had maybe a couple of occasions where I... I didn't know the student before, and I accepted them entirely because they played well, and it didn't work. And I, 
I opened the door and I told them, you know, as, as good as you are, I'm not here to just clap and say how good you are. I'm here to take you to the next step. And if you don't want to go there, I'm not the right teacher for you. Mm-hmm. And it only happened twice, but the other times it's just a great joy. And that teachable aspect is, I think, the most important because I'm not trying to make um, 20 yo-yo months. That's not going to happen. There's only one. But I do try to make people better. And if they don't listen, they're not going to become better. So this is very important for me to see if they're teachable. And they are part of the family. You know, they come to my house. They know my kids. They know my wife. My wife is in charge of scheduling anyway. So she's the boss of my life and their life. They don't even write me emails anymore. They write to my <laughs> wife. And so we become a family. And maybe it's also due to how I grew up in the kibbutz, in the social environment, uh, being equal and sharing. You know, none of them call me mister. That's the first lesson. I'm not mister. I'm a meet. But you have to respect me. Mm. And f- with the Asian students, I find it's very difficult. They cannot look in my eyes, for instance. For a female student to look at their teacher and to be equal and to, to tell them their opinion is unacceptable. So the first lesson with them is look in my eyes and call me a meat. And they find it impossible. But you have to see what happened to them after they, it, they become accustomed to it how open they are on stage and how open they become as, as artists and human beings. And that's, that's my job. And so it might not work with everybody, and that's why we need to check it first. But my job is to train them to become artists, to become uh, free with the instrument, to become free in front of other people. They can, I always tell them, you can go back home and be shy and, and you know, watch TV and read mm. your book and not talk to anybody. That's fine. Mm. But the moment you take the cello and you express emotions with it to public, there are different rules. Yeah, I guess you can't be shy if you're, if you're on stage expressing you I mean, your, you can, you can show that you are a shy person and mm. very intimate, and through that show the emotions of the music, but you have to be 150% open with yourself. Mm. Um, it's, it's almost like walking naked on stage, mm. knowing that you're not perfect but still doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very difficult, very difficult. And there are a lot of barriers, psychological barriers that you have to break if you want to do it. And my job as a teacher is not only to show them where to put the fingers and how to vibrate and how to move the bow. It's also to find those barriers and as painful as they are to break them. Mm. So there are a lot of tears in my studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but moving on to a, a higher level. Um, I, I'm cu- curious what it was like growing up in a kibbutz. And, and how you get from there to to, to America and and uh, and, a, and a career with cello? I think for kids it's it's heaven. You walk outside barefoot and you run and you have everything. Education is free, food is free, clothes are free, you know free. Uh, it's just it's a wonderful environment to to grow up in as a child. For parents, I think my parents now realize. Well, we gave our children. I have three sisters, so we are four all together the best education they could have, but we're, we have nothing now. We don't have any savings. We have nothing. And, you know, when you have grandchildren, you want to buy them presents. It's hard when you don't have anything. Uh, they gave all their life to the kibbutz, to the community, believing in this ideological idea, and I admire them for that, but they're left with, with nothing uh, as far as money. And I think for, for the older generation... Um, they realized it didn't work. In Israel, it was not purely co- communism, but uh, obviously we see that the communism didn't work in Russia, and, and that's why, I think, because some people work really hard, some people don't work at all, and still everybody gets the same. So for the kids, you know, for me to be able to get lessons and to go abroad and to express all I could with my talent was not possible if I wouldn't live there because you know, who knows if my parents would have the money to even buy a cello. Um, and to pay for those summer festivals and for the lessons through the kibbutz, it was possible. So I think I, I thank that place a lot for it. And still, when I go to Israel now, there's like a bus full of people that heard me since I was 10 years old that come to all the concerts. It's a very, very special place. But I think it needs to reconstruct the <laughs> this format because it doesn't really work that you work all your life, 14, 16 hours a day, and you end up with nothing. Are there uh, still people living this life? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's more privatized now than Mm -hmm. it used to be. I mean, when I was a child and I was supposed to go to a summer camp, the whole community had to vote 
if I could do that because the other kids are not doing it. And luckily the vote that I came, but that was, that was the environment. It was very, very different. And still very supportive, extremely supportive. Um, so from that environment, I, the first time I saw an airplane, or was on an airplane, it's the first time I saw it, was when I was 16 and I went to a summer festival in the States. Um, all my friends never went on a plane. You know, so my kids now, being all over the world, um, they're laughing. When, you know, my daughter, she's eight, and I explained to her, you know, when I was your age, I couldn't even dream of flying an airplane, uh, in an airplane. I mean, going abroad was something un- unthinkable. And then when I was 18, I had to join the army, like anybody in Israel. So for three years, I had to serve in the army. And luckily, we have the army string quartet, and I had to compete and win the cello chair in the army string quartet. <laughs> and it was a great experience. You know, a lot of kids today come to college and, and start complaining. You know, we don't have time to practice and this and that. And I tell them my life story. You know, for three years, I didn't practice. I had to perform for soldiers. And nothing happened to me. Mm. I'm totally fine. Mm. And, you know, you have to learn how if you have a performance for soldiers and you have to leave at 5, uh, at, sorry, at 10 a.m., so you wake up at 5 and you practice. Mm. And that's it. And you sleep in the car. So if you have finals in college and you have to practice for your recital, you wake up at 5 and practice. Mm. And that's it. Mm. And if you have to do it, you do it. If you don't have to do it, you complain because life is difficult. So I, I learned a lot from it. And, and after the Army, when I was 21, I got a full scholarship to Yale University to study there. And so I started the whole academic journey when I was almost 22. And I'm fine. It's okay. You know? <laughs> it's worked out. Yeah. It's so worked out. I think that was also a lesson for me. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you grew up listening to Casals. You were inspired, and that maybe you know set your life course. I wonder, young musicians coming up, uh, would you suggest that they seek out, listen to Rostropovich to pray? You know, oh, would, yes. would that help them, or, or do they need to find their own voice, or does that come later? Well, you, you find your own voice after you base, base it on knowledge. I remember when I studied in Berlin, in Germany, for my graduate studies, there was um, an exhibition of drawings by the young Picasso. And I went there with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and we were shocked. I mean, you see those drawings. It's a typical painter. Exact. Everything is right. All the rules are there. It's not the Picasso we know. Portraits of people, like photograph. And then you realize he found his voice, his Picasso voice, this so unique voice in paintings that we know today and people pay millions for only after he mastered the technique of being a painter. And that's something I tell my students always, you know, first of all, listen to Rostopovich, to Kazas, to Depre, to Yoyoma, to Horowitz, to Rubinstein, not just to cello. See and hear how they play and only then find your voice. I think it's a big mistake today that people in a very young age they want to, you know, to establish a string quartet. And before they even know how to play their own instrument. Or they want to make a big career before they learn the repertoire, before you have the vocabulary. How can you play a late Beethoven string quartet when you haven't played all the proper showpieces for your cello? Getting to know what I call the GPS of your instrument. And so I think today it's even easier than my days. Because today you have YouTube. You can just click on YouTube and you hear Rostopovich for free. I had to pay for it to buy a CD or to to see a video, to go to the library. Now it's all available. So I think it's a wonderful time for them to to have this availability. Um, Sometimes when I listen to students in masterclass, I ask them, how many recordings of this piece do you know? And they say, oh, I heard it on YouTube with some students, and and I'm shocked. Why didn't you hear it with Yoyo Ma and Rostropovich? I even asked them, can you imitate Rostropovich's sound? And they don't know what I'm talking about. But mm-hmm. the stage of imitation is imit- imitating a great master is wonderful. I think it's great. You know, when you're a basketball player, you want to look at Michael Jordan. You want to see how he did it, all his moves. You want to imitate them, and then you come up with your own move. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important stage because they're all masters. They all know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. What finally? What uh, what are some of your favorite pieces that that you most well, always keep in, in in the repertory? Well, you know, being a cellist, it's hard to say favorite because we don't have so many. Mm-hmm. It's not like being a pianist that you have only Mozart wrote twenty seven piano concertos. We have <laughs> just few. So I think as a performer, you have to master all of them. And it's hard for me to say what is my favorite because it depends on the mood. You know, every composer is touching different 
part of your soul in a way. And it depends on your move. I, I love Beethoven and I love Schumann. And I love Bach and I love Mozart. I wish Mozart would write for cello. Um, I love a lot of pieces that are not for cello also. And I love listening to them. I, I just regret that I don't have enough time to simply sit at home just with a glass of wine maybe and, and listen to music without um, completing a, a project. I have to listen to it because I have to learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I miss those days. You know, now having kids and the students and the performing, there's hardly any time to do it, to just listen to music. Um, I, I cherish it and I hope I... I will have this time later mm-hmm. just to listen to music. Mm. We've been talking with Amit Pelid. More information at AmitPelid.com. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. And we'll be broadcasting Amit Pelid's recent concert on the USU campus. Uh, coming up soon, a listen for those announcements, to listen for that to broadcast of Amit Pelid's concert on Utah Public Radio coming up soon. We have for you more conversation about music in this musical hour of Access Utah. Glad you're listening. A conversation with three members of the great vocal ensemble Chanticleer coming up following the break. They performed recently in Logan. We'll talk about the group's interesting beginnings, possible rivalry with the King Singers and men singing soprano following the break. Did you know that less than one-third of Americans hold at least a bachelor's degree? But at least 30% of adults in 16 states, mostly on the coasts, have earned a bachelor's degree or higher? The three interior states among those 16 are Illinois, Minnesota, and Utah. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. I'm here with the three members of Chanticleer, called uh, the world's reigning male chorus by New Yorker magazine and Ensemble of the Year by Musical America in uh, 2008. Of course, we... All, I assume, know Chanticleer, and Chanticleer is uh, in Logan for a couple of performances. We welcome in uh, Jace Wittig, uh, who's Interim Music Director. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Gregory Peebles is Assistant uh, Director, right? Yes, that's correct. It's lovely to be here as well. And sing soprano? I do. We'll talk about that because it, sure. you know, for some I'm people, sure uh, a man singing soprano is, might seem might seem different, but you have a full range of mm-hmm. men's voices there. Corey Reed is a singing soprano and tenor. That is correct. The three members of the ensemble. How many in, in Chanticleer? There are twelve total, plus myself. Um, yes. I actually don't sing with them, uh, or at least not regularly. Anyway, just in rehearsal. All right. And the group's been going for, it started in the 1980s. Right? 1978 specifically. Oh, 1978. 30, yes, this is our 35th year yeah. anniversary. And I was reading a biography, very interesting, um, interesting gentleman who started the group. Louis Grillo? Louis Botto was his uh, name. Botto. Yeah, he was a tenor also, uh, sometimes sang alto with the ensemble. Uh, he was uh, studying early music and, well, particularly historically informed practice of music at San Francisco State University at the time and thought it would be interesting perhaps to hear the sounds that would have been expected from the composers when they were writing music from the Renaissance. Got a group of his friends together, sat around, cooked them dinner. They all sang some songs and said, hey, kids, let's get a bus. And it kind of worked out in their favor. <laughs> and he apparently believed that there should be more choral jobs out there, so... He wanted, to, he wanted to found a group where that would be the main occupation of the members. Right. I think that was the, the dream. Um, it didn't actually come to full fruition until uh, until about 1990. Uh, the singers were being paid early on, but uh, about 1990, there was it just became obvious that there were so many concerts and there was so much touring that you know to have a day job and try to tour for six months out of the year, well, that doesn't really make very much sense. Mm-hmm. So um, it was around that time that they uh, became 12 full-time members and uh, started touring about half the year, and mm-hmm. it's been that way ever since. And as always happens in show business, there's uh, some stories of some breaks the group got, including one that I'm reading about, where you got a break, you could uh, go and, and fill in for a group that had dropped out, but you had to rehearse on a plane. I, I don't think any of you were here at that time, but... No, I wasn't there, but I did hear about this particular performance, that there was a, an opportunity for Chanticleer to go across, I believe it was to the Netherlands, um, and they were rehearsing a particular mass, a Renaissance mass that had, hadn't been performed in a long time. 
And so they were rehearsing it on the plane. They got to the to the venue, and the first singer started it at half tempo of what it was actually supposed to be performed. <laughs> and but no one stopped. They just kept it going, and it went beautifully. And it was a, actually a bit of a revelation about the mass that it could work so well at that tempo. And the oh. the, the Dutch went crazy for it. A happy accident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you've had some influential people in the group, including uh, Joseph Jennings, who who uh, helped to develop a lot of the repertoire. Right. He was our longtime music director and still the music director emeritus. And um, he not only helped to expand the repertoire that that the group was currently or was already uh, performing, but also added a lot of his own uh, sort of musical background, specifically through uh, introduction of a lot of gospel music and spirituals, um, something that he grew up singing. And, uh, you you know, a couple of us that are currently in the group were still around when he was a music director. And he often Mm -hmm. would just sort of sit down at the piano and teach it to you you yeah, know there was yeah. nothing in that in that tradition you know it's all mm-hmm. taught by rote or by by singing and, and repetition um and we certainly owe a lot to him each of you gentlemen has been in the group for a relatively short period of time right uh so you would have gone through the audition process in fact on the on your website you have the frequently asked questions about the audition process a lot of people maybe want to join the group someday uh, so how how's that process? Yes, um, this is my second season, so I actually went through it not too long ago. Um, you send in a, a CD with uh, vocalises and um, demonstrating your vocal range, and what the most important um, part of that is, there's two songs that you sing in contrasting style. There's an aria, an art song, as well as a contemporary jazz, you know, something that is contrasting in style, and that gets um, submitted to our music director and assistant music director to you know filter out. Um, people that we think aren't that ready. Yeah, aren't ready yet. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, after that, you are invited for a live audition in San Francisco, and that usually takes place over the weekend, which involves sight reading as as well as a recital portion where you sing those two songs or other two songs in front of uh, Chanticleer, the board of directors, and um, our, you know our special family in San Francisco. Yeah. And then uh, the last day is the most fun day of all because um, everyone gets to sing together and we plug in voices, and there's just a huge. We, we set everybody up in that big arc, and uh, you just plug and chug. Jace like sing alto, sings bass, sing tenor, and then before you know it, I'm singing bass, and I can't sing bass, and <laughs> so it's pretty fun. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fun process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine you have to be pretty good though to even make the the, the cut to come and <laughs> an audition for Chanticleer. Uh, you'd probably be the you know the number one group in America, I would, well, I would think, right? And there are a lot of, in the world, you know? Well, thank you. There are a lot of, of groups doing very good singing. We're, we're rather unique, I think, um, in that we are all male. You know, there are uh, yeah. certainly sort of typical male choruses that only sing tenor and bass repertoire, but since we also sing soprano, alto, tenor, bass, it, it just kind of sets us apart, I think. Um, <clears throat> but we actually, we just went through auditions this past weekend in San Francisco before we oh. headed out here to Utah, so it was uh, Adding a new very, too? very long, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Oh, it depends. It depends on what you. Depends want. on who's headed out the door, right? But as okay. you said, it's not only do you have to have talent and skill, but I think that there is a very specific skill set for Chanticleer. So maybe if you aren't a part of Chanticleer after your audition, it really has very little to do with how good you are as an artist, and really just with what are the needs of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. By the way, just on on that, there are a lot of good groups out there, but uh, maybe only a handful that people could name off, you know, from the top of their head. I'm sort of envisioning a Sharks and Jets rumble between you and King Singers. I don't know if that ever, you know, do your, do your paths cross? They'd be the other group that most people could name. Right. They have crossed, um, not not sharing a concert or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, no, we're uh, we're friends with them. And yeah. some okay. of us, uh, you know, and Eric Alatori, our bass, our lowest bass in particular, has, you know, met them several times. Um, we tend to kind of run in slightly different circles in terms of where we perform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, there's no, there's no rivalry. I don't think. Okay. Uh, you know, fr- fr- if it is, so it's 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 friendly. Yeah. Okay. Well, there are twice as many of us as there are of them, so it's not a fair fight. Okay, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if you had a sing off, it'd be kind of a apples and oranges. Uh, we're talking with uh, members of Chanticleer, uh, who are in Logan for uh, performances at the Ellen Eccles Theater in downtown Logan. Uh, Jace Wittig, who's interim music director. Uh, Gregory Peebles, uh, assistant director and soprano, and uh, Corey Reed, who sings soprano and tenor uh, with the group. Uh, I want to talk about the repertory. You, you sing. You started out sort of with the Renaissance medieval music. That was the vision of the the founder. But I, I think you sing just about anything. That's point. right. Um, it's in a way, it's a, it's sort of a typical touring program for us. We try to. Um, demonstrate all the different repertoire that we sing. So it, it's more or less a gradual progression through music history um, with a few sort of uh, 
uh, non sequiturs thrown in there along mm-hmm. the way for color. Uh, but yes, you're right. We start with uh, primarily music from the Renaissance, work our way through romantic uh, new compositions, uh, 20th century music, and finally kind of close it all out with our signature blend of, mm-hmm. of uh, pop and gospel and jazz. Yeah. I think one of the things that's so successful about the way that we program music, and particularly one of these touring concerts, is that there is a little bit of something for everyone. So if it's a concert specifically dedicated to Dufay and you're not really into Dufay, then about 20 minutes into the concert, you're waiting for intermission so that you can break to the car. Mm -hmm. However, with our sets that are varied, then if you don't like this song, just Mm -hmm. hang out for five minutes because it'll be something completely different. Mm -hmm. What sort of repertory, typical repertory you'll be doing in Logan? Throw in any surprises? What, uh, well, what I think the, the surprise is particularly in the to be announced, uh, to be determined mm-hmm. section at the end of the concert. There's a lot of room for, for mixing things up there. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, something we do most evenings is a really fun arrangement of Temptation, which is uh, a Tom Waits tune that was uh, performed, uh, performed by several people, but uh, particularly Diana Krall. And uh, we work with a, an arranger named Vince Peterson, who is based in New York, who's done several very popular arrangements for us. And it, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it kind of has a nice bossa nova groove to it, several solos, and um, audiences really enjoy that. Reading, you've you've had at least one poem composed for you. <laughs> yes, uh, we, we were Tell just me about in, that, right? No, we were just in Phoenix uh, and sang a concert in a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, church there with really kind of an ideal acoustic. We we could sing, we could have sung all night, you know, mm-hmm. and um, showed up back at home. And our director of development said we've received a donation, but it it is of a rather unorthodox variety. <laughs> um, and somebody had written a very charming little poem for us. Hmm. Very good. You could find that on the website. Uh, by the way, uh, Chanticleer.org. Uh, I want to talk about the range of voices. As, as I introduced uh, you as soprano, you know, that yes. might, might be odd to some people, but uh, it's, a, it's a men's chorus, but uh, a full range of voices. A lot of people find that particularly confusing. They can't imagine in the first place how a man would sing soprano, and the short answer of that is, like anyone sings soprano, if you can do it, you can do it. Mm. Um, but it's not really as technically... Um, arcane as it would seem. Uh, There's just different portions of the vocal cords that respond to air in different ways and you use them when it's time and you don't when it's not. Mm -hmm. And to add on that, it's, it's like any other muscle. You know, you go to work out with your biceps, you go to the gym, and you you strengthen those. It's it's the same sort of you know thing with with mm-hmm. uh, your vocal folds too. So after after a lot of time and using them and strengthening them and finding out different colors and timbres and and shapes you can make with your mouth, and you know you, you know where, where to go from there. So, but particularly the soprano voice, I think, is a mystery to American audiences. Perhaps in Europe, where they're more used to countertenor voices, which they tend to think of as altos, but only in the last perhaps 10 years or so have male sopranos come onto the scene in uh, the American classical culture. But uh, it's really just a matter of tessitura. I mean, you can hear in my speaking voice that it sits pretty high. So um, when, I, when I use my head voice, it just sits higher than mm-hmm. someone who might use uh, their head voice as an alto. Right. By the way, do you gentlemen branch out and uh, sing some countertenor, say in opera or, or other things? I think we all have different strengths and different areas of study with the, the falsetto. And my, my background came from barbershop acapella music, so um, I've trained my voice to, to sound a certain way over a period of time. And it's, it's then, once you're in Chanticleer, trying to make other colors, you know, broaden your palette. You know? mm-hmm. So um, I don't have that operatic background for, for a countertenor. I'd say Gregory and a few others, and uh, Cortez Mitchell, one of our other countertenors, is just amazing with, with that mm-hmm. style of music. But there's not, uh, sorry to interrupt, there's, oh, there's really not any time to do it when you're in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this right. is our full-time job, and, mm-hmm. and it, just to, to find... A hole in the schedule where you could do something like that is is nearly impossible. Oh, right. So um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of a lot of former singers have moved back into that realm after they leave the group, and certainly came from there. But while you're in the group, it's it's pretty much just this because mm-hmm. um, that's all there, the time there is. Now I'm imagining Chanticleer doing barbershop. I don't know if you is it a, a totally different style? Could you could you do could Chanticleer do something like that? And I guess the second question is, what, does that harm or or help you when you come to Chanticleer? Um, you know, I, I've heard stories of Joseph Jennings, the, the previous music director, um, pulling out some barbershop charts and working on it with the ensemble. Um, I don't know how much barbershop they did or when they did it, um, but, um, yeah, it would. I, I would love to do more stuff like that. Um, 
but as far as you know training your voice for for something like that that happened for me in in high school and mm-hmm. i've just followed up with that so yeah it, it, it's, it's different training as, as you go along right. i want to ask you about um blending the voices that's of course the the goal the main goal of any ensemble right right try to get the right color try to sing as one is that what uh, occupies most of your rehearsal um yes and no i think we some of the blend is achieved just by finding the right singers. Um, and, and interesting, it sort of ties into the question that you just asked about barbershop. Um, one of the most important things for us is versatility. A singer who can sing barbershop or jazz or opera or a simple folk song with with an equal artistic uh, level of artistic integrity. Um, and if you find singers who can do all those things, then it's much easier for them to blend together because they understand the style. So they understand how to color their voice before we even really read the piece. So a bit of that is taken care of before we even start rehearsing. But certainly it's uh, it, it, it takes a little bit of doing. And, and sometimes in particular with countertenors, we have to shuffle people around. You know, if we're singing a piece by Mahler, we want a different soprano sound than a piece by Palestrina. So we don't necessarily use all the same singers. And um, th- when we, you know, after a couple weeks of rehearsing, a new singer sort of understands how they fit into that blend. Mm. You do educational outreach, I notice. Yeah, I, th- I think recently you formed a a group for young singers. We Is did. The Lab Choir, named after Louis Bato, actually, uh, his initials. And um, they do a lot of education in the San Francisco area uh, while we're out on the road. Uh, and we tend to do more on the road. In fact, we uh, will do a master class with the uh, chamber singers here on campus tomorrow. It's not open to the public. Uh, but we always look forward to, to working with the singers and helping them uh, improve upon what they do and also just keep singing. Mm-hmm. Well, education helps us because if we can educate the next generation of singers that are coming up, then we don't have to work so hard looking for people to sing in Chanticleer later. <laughs> right. <laughs> it benefits you. Yes. Finally, I'm, I'm curious about what, what you gentlemen listen to on your iPod. You know, what do you have on your playlist? Uh, maybe some of the same stuff you sing, but you probably like a little variety. I just turned my phone off or I would just look at the recently played yeah. for you. But I'm enjoying, uh, I always enjoy music by this gal named Tori Amos. She has uh, a strange blend of both classical music and pop music, singer-songwriter. She has a very strange voice as well. So mm-hmm. if you're really looking for beauty of voice, I don't think she's the place to go. But, uh, oh, Tori, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that if you hear <laughs> this. Uh, I, I think I I also have been enjoying a, a guy named Simon Curtis that uses almost entirely 8-bit sounds from Atari or Nintendo to create the soundscape of his records. Interesting. Let's see. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the Carpenters, uh, and you know, solo soloists like um, Phil Phil Collins. Um, I like a lot of just movie sound, film scores, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, in addition to barbershop and choral music, mm-hmm. which is, I'd say, probably mostly what I listen to. So. Yeah. I kind of I listen to a little bit of everything. I love old singers. I listen to a lot of Ella Fitzgerald. I listen to a lot of Aretha Franklin. Um, I love. I, I don't know. I mean, I could go on and on. I I have been also listening to a lot of big choral works lately, um, you know, something we don't really get to do, choral orchestral works in Chanticleer. We only have 12 singers. Um, and, you know, it's it's nice to delve into the world of Britain and Brahms for mm. a few days when, you're, uh, when you haven't sung it in seven or eight years now. Mm. Well, Chanticleer, one of the uh, premier uh, vocal ensembles in the world, is we've been talking with Jace Wittig, Interim Music Director. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Uh, Gregory Peebles, Assistant Director and Soprano. Thank you. It was a treat. And Corey Reed, Soprano and Tenor. Thanks. Thank you very much. Chanticleer recently performed in Logan. This is KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening.